0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So as Martin said, the Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 24, and I'm going to read the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood And put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I've written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights.
1: Excellent. Great. Well, it's good to not be preaching to the uh, camera on my computer. And uh, yeah, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for this uh, time to gather around your word. We just pray, uh, Father, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. Uh, Please, Father, still our hearts and minds. Uh, Give us the uh, humility that we need to receive your word and to be changed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I do uh, wonder what it is you're looking for when, you, uh, when we gather together for worship each Sunday. Uh, maybe uh, as you uh, come together to, to worship with God's people, you're, you're looking for a bit of entertainment. You know, some quality music, uh, some great conversation and an incredibly engaging speaker, of course. Uh, some quality entertainment each Sunday afternoon, perhaps not. Uh, maybe you're coming for some inspiration Go you know, something to, to kind of lift your spirits a little bit, to get you through the drudgery, the grind of the next week. And maybe you're coming together, but because you're eager to be taught the very words of God, to grow in your knowledge of God, to grow in your love for God. And maybe you're someone who really likes to make a difference, to contribute, to serve, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. What are you looking for? What are you expecting when we come together to worship each Sunday? Because what you're looking for says a lot about what you think we're doing when we gather together for worship. I started this way because Exodus 24 is actually a worship service, isn't it? If you take a look at the passage in, in verses 1 and 2, you'll see that God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, uh, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. Uh, but Moses is alone, alone is to approach the Lord. Uh, the others must, uh, must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So exodus twenty four is a worship service on the occasion of the covenant between God and his people being confirmed uh, if you 've been uh, tuning in or attending church the last few weeks, you know from exodus twenty to twenty three God has been detailing the terms of his covenant with his people, all those commands and laws, the, the promise of obedience, uh, the promise rather of blessing and life, if Israel obeys those commands. Uh, And the warning of curses if Israel disobeys those commands. That's really where we left off last week. Uh, So in this chapter, having had God outline all the terms of the covenant, the people have to accept those terms for this covenant to be ratified, to be confirmed. And on this special occasion uh, of the confirmation of God's covenant with his people, uh, God tells Moses to organise a worship service. If you look at verses 1 and 2 again, you'll see that most of the people of Israel had to stay right down the bottom of the mountain, at the foot of the mountain. Nowhere near, really, God's glorious presence. And then there's a group of 73 leaders of Israel who could go up the mountain a bit. But A bit closer to God's presence, but still staying at a distance. And only Moses is actually allowed to draw near to God, to approach the Lord. Oh, so that's the scene in verses 1 and 2. This is a worship service on the occasion of God's covenant being confirmed with his people. And Now, of course, when we gather together for worship, uh, it's not about confirming our covenant every single Sunday, isn't it? Uh, you may uh, maybe heard in previous weeks where we've referenced those verses out of First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten, where Peter quotes God's words to Israel in Exodus chapter nineteen, saying, "You are my chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God." But we are already God's covenant people. Before we come along each Sunday, we don't have to kind of confirm that every Sunday when we come along. Uh, But our worship services are, as it were, a renewal of our covenant with God and with one another. And so it makes sense that we would see some elements that go on here in in Exodus 24 in our worship services. So this is my summary. You can see that kind of big summary sentence uh, on the welcome card. My summary is that our worship as God's covenant people is grounded in the book of the covenant is possible because of the blood of the covenant, is satisfying because of the bread of the covenant, and is infinite because it involves entering God's glorious presence. I think that's what we're going to unpack uh, from Exodus 24. So first, let's see how Israel's worship is grounded in the book of the covenant. Uh, Take a look there in the first part of verse 3. Uh, Moses, uh, the the people of Israel, hear the book of the covenant spoken to them by Moses, right? Moses went and told the people the Lord's words and laws. Words there, that refers to the ten words, the ten commandments back in Exodus chapter 20. uh, And laws refers to all the other laws uh, that God has been detailing in the previous chapters, uh, the people here, the, the book of the covenant, the, the summary of all these laws and commands, spoken to them by Moses. Uh, these are the terms of the covenant, and you'll see that the people respond uh, with a very bold commitment to obey those terms. Uh, that they say, uh, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Uh, but then you look in verse 4, uh, and the people, uh, the, the book of the covenant is written down by Moses. That's significant, isn't it? Even at this, at this stage of God's covenant, people, in a, in a largely uh, kind of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, oh, I've just had a blank. But anyway, you know, we're auditory uh, culture, but it's not that. It's something else. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, anyway, but most people weren't kind of necessarily literate. Uh, it was really important for God's people not just to hear his words spoken to them, but to have it written down and read to them. Well, that's significant, right? Because you must never think that the inspired words of God that are written down in your Bible are somehow a deficient word from God. Right? Sometimes we think that, don't we? Like, there's, like, sure, God speaks through the Bible, but then there's how God really speaks. I don't know. We see here, it's important for God's people to have his word written down and read to them. So that's what happens in verse 7. Uh, the people here, the book of the covenant, read to them. Moses takes the book of the covenant and reads it to the people. And again, they respond with a bold commitment to obey the terms of that covenant. They, uh, they promise, declare, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And we've seen in the previous chapters, particularly in regard to the second commandment, other uh, the kind of prohibition against making images uh, and worshipping those images in the context of worshipping God, we've seen that our God is spirit. Right? He's without physical form, uh, so the way he reveals himself to us is by speaking to us. Uh, so the way we know God and relate to God and worship God is, uh, ought to be grounded in and governed by his word. His word that we have in the Bible, our kind of full book of the covenant, if you like. Which is why when we gather together for worship here at DPC, we try to have everything that we do grounded in and governed by God's word. We pray the Bible, we sing truths from the Bible, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we respond to the truths that we've heard about who God is and what He has done in the Bible. Because we understand that that we're not at liberty to worship a God of our own making. Why are we to worship God as he's revealed himself in his word? Likewise, we're not at liberty to worship God however we want. It's not that there's no freedom. But it is the case that it's a very serious thing for sinful, broken, imperfect people like us to enter into the presence of a holy and perfect God. And so God, in His Word, tells us how it's safe to do that. Tells us how He wants us to do that. Our worship must be grounded in and governed by the book of the covenant, how God has spoken to us in His Word. Second, our worship is only possible because of the blood of the covenant. I take a look at the second half of verse four. You'll see there, Moses gets up very early in the morning. Right, he's eager to get this worship service organised so that the covenant between God and His people can be confirmed. Then Moses builds an altar. Remember back at the end of Exodus chapter 20, God gave some instructions for how altars should be built. So presumably Moses is putting that into practice. Uh, And we're told that there are 12 pillars around this altar uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Which tells us that the sacrifices that will be offered on this altar are offered as substitutes. They're offered in the place of all the people of Israel. So, this also reminds us of a key truth that really runs throughout the Bible, which is that if sinful people like us, imperfect people like us, want to enter into the glorious presence of God, then a sacrifice must be offered in our place, a substitute, someone, a sacrifice that bears the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And so, in verses 5 and 6, we see some of those sacrifices. So, in verse 5, Moses asks the young Israelite men uh, to offer up some burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, If you want to chase that uh, burnt offerings up more, you can read Leviticus chapter 1 later on. A detailed description of these burnt offerings. The the burnt offerings, sometimes called whole burnt offerings, were consumed completely by fire. Uh, the idea being that, uh, to, to kind of give a picture of complete forgiveness of sins, complete atonement for sins, and Israel's complete devotion to the Lord. That's the burnt offerings. That These young men uh, were also to offer up fellowship offerings. You can read about those in Leviticus chapter 3. Uh, the fellowship offerings are a little bit different to the well, quite different to the burnt offerings. Uh, as suggested, if you take a look there at verse six, the blood uh, of these bulls is drained out, you know, it's a bit it's a bit you know graphic, isn't it? The, the blood is drained out, uh, and half of it is splashed on the altar, and half of it is put in a bowl. Uh, then, uh, oh, sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it was splashed on the altar to, to show uh, that Israel's uh, sins had been atoned for. Uh, so the point of the... I don't know if you've heard this before. I don't know if it's that helpful to you, but it was helpful to me. Uh, but, you know the word atonement? It kind of means at... it's kind of at-one-ment. at well, one atonement What does it mean to have your sins fully atoned for? It means that you're able to be at one with God, to have fellowship with God, to have relationship with God. With God. That's what this fellowship offering is about. So having kind of uh, splashed the blood against the altar, uh, the, the rest of the bull was grilled up on the, on the altar, uh, and the people would sit down and eat it in the presence of God and with one another uh, as a sign of the fellowship that had been secured by this sacrifice between them and God uh, and, and for them as God's people. So you see so far that we've got the blood of the covenant, it's about substitution with the altar, it's about atonement uh, with these offerings. Uh, It also speaks of three things to do with the sprinkling, commitment, forgiveness and consecration. Some people want to pick one of those three, I reckon they're probably all there, so let's talk about them a bit. Uh, Three ideas, all from the sprinkling. Uh, Moses splashed, you remember, half of the blood on the altar. Uh, But then he sprinkles, in verse 8, the rest of the blood on the people. And in fact, next week, uh, you come back again, and and that's what we'll do. No, I'm joking. Um, uh, so, uh, So first, this sprinkling of blood, what does it mean? First, it's about the commitment of this covenant. It's a very serious commitment. What does the blood show? It's a matter of life and death. That's what this commitment's about. Keeping the covenant will lead to unbelievable blessings and life, but breaking the covenant will lead to horrible curses and death. Blood is what the person deserves to have their blood shed if they break this covenant. It's about commitment. It also speaks of forgiveness, that the forgiveness that God offers to his people to make their relationship possible, which is why the blood has to be splashed on the altar first, right? Because God first has to receive the sacrifice that his people have offered for their sins in their place uh, to even make any consideration of relationship possible. Right? This sacrifice has paid the cost of forgiveness uh, because real forgiveness is never cheap, it's always costly. Commitment, forgiveness, and third, the sprinkling is about consecration. You can imagine if someone sprinkles some blood on you, uh, it's not that easy to get the blood out, right? I don't know how they wash their clothes out in the wilderness, they, they probably didn't have nappy sand or something, you know, like. Uh, and so that blood probably stood there for quite a while, leaving a permanent mark on God's people reminding them that the day had been set apart as the people of God, consecrated for him and for his purposes. Israel's worship is only possible because of the blood of the covenant. A third, Israel's worship is satisfying because of the bread of the covenant. You might be wondering where this came from. In verse 11, "...the leaders of Israel eat and drink with God." It doesn't use the word bread, but you guys know I'm a bit of a fan of alliteration in my sermon outline. Uh, so, you know, another B works well. Uh, it also helps, you know, join the dots in the big story of the Bible. Uh, bread, and they probably did eat some bread because bread was a you know, staple diet thing in that day. So, anyway, there you go. They eat and drink in God's presence. And, of course, in the Bible, after a covenant it is kind of cut, it's kind of sealed, By the shedding of blood, it's often celebrated by sharing a meal. You could chase it up in, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Genesis 31. Jacob and Laban form a covenant, a solemn vow, uh, and then they share a meal together. Uh, We see this today as well. There's not a lot of talk of covenants today, but uh, marriage is is a covenant. Uh, You have husband and wife making their covenant vows to one another. And then typically... They share a wedding feast, right, to to celebrate their covenant. Well, likewise with this covenant in Exodus chapter 24, the trajectory of it is that God's people might be able to eat and drink in his presence. God calls the 74 leaders of Israel, if you look in verses 9 and 10, he calls them up the mountain. And quite incredibly, in verses 9 and 10, we're told that they actually see God. Oh, I said in the outline there, at least they sort of see God. Uh, in Exodus 33, a few chapters after this, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And I'm not denying that, that these leaders of Israel got a glimpse of the glory of God as they went up Mount Sinai. Right? That by itself is, is pretty incredible, isn't it? Right, but it seems that as they got that glimpse of God, uh, all they could do was collapse to the ground uh, in absolute awe and wonder. Uh, Which is why all they can describe is the pavement under God's feet, you see. That's all they're looking at. They're kind of down on the ground and they're like, "Although the pavement itself was good. what What was it like to see the glory of God? don't know. But the pavement was spectacular. Right? Pavement made out of lapis lazuli, uh, which is kind of a bit like a sapphire, or a blue kind of stone. Uh, but here it's been polished up uh, to look bright, like, like, like the, the sky on a bright and sunny day. And then we're told, if you look in verse 11, that uh, God didn't raise his hand against these leaders to strike them down in his judgment. Right? That's what they deserved. They were sinners. But The blood of the covenant has been shed. Their sins have been atoned for. They've been forgiven. And so they've been liberated from the judgment that they deserve. And so, uh, having their sins atoned for, the leaders are welcome to eat and drink in God's presence. In the ancient world, uh, perhaps even more so today, sharing a meal together, uh, that that was a really typical sign of, of welcoming someone, of really accepting them into your life. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with you. For you to be completely forgiven of all your sins, cleansed of your sins, that you might be welcomed into His presence, invited to His table, that you might eat and drink in His presence. It's why in in the Gospels, uh, there are a few times where it says, the Son of Man came to do this. The Son of Man came to save sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I think there's only one other one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This was something that typified Jesus Jesus, as God in the flesh, was eager to share meals with tax collectors, right? the, the social outcasts, so we're with sinners, those whose lives were kind of sin-personified, the blatantly immoral people. But he did that as a signer of what he offered through his blood shed on the cross, complete forgiveness of sins, such that people could enter into God's presence and eat and drink with him. It's why Christ gave us the Lord's Supper. right The the meal of the new covenant. To remind us that faith in His blood shed on the cross uh, means that that not only does God not raise His hand to strike us down if we enter His presence, but He welcomes us in. He invites us to sit at at His table. He invites us to eat and drink with Him. And in the process... The deepest needs of our soul are satisfied. Not because we're munching away on a piece of bread or drinking a little cup of grape juice, right? but because in our hearts we're feeding by faith on Christ, the ultimate bread of the covenant, the one who describes himself as the bread of life, whose body broken on the cross, if we receive it by faith, it would satisfy the deepest needs of our soul. Our need for forgiveness, our need for freedom, our need for acceptance by the God who made us. Our worship is satisfying because of the bread of the covenant. And fifth, worship is infinite because it involves entering God's glorious presence. This is the end part of the passage, verses 12 Verses 12 and 14, God calls Moses further up the mountain and you see in verse 12 that part of the purpose of their meeting up on the mountain uh, is so that God can give Moses uh, two copies of the stone tablets. Uh, they've got to be two tablets, not because God, because I was writing the first five commandments on one, and he's like, "Oh man, I should have written smaller." Now I've got to get a second one. You know, like that's not how, not how it happened. Uh, it's like two copies of a contract. You know, even if you get a phone, right? You have to. There's, they keep a copy, and you keep a copy. That's what's going on here. There are two stone tablets because God has a copy of the terms of the covenant, and His people have a copy of the terms. Uh, Written on these stone tablets uh, is just the Ten Commandments themselves. So we see that, if you want to chase it up, in Exodus 32, verses 15 and 16. The other laws that are referenced in in this verse, the other laws that we've uh, looked at previously, are given to Moses verbally, and then he writes them down, like he did with the Book of the Covenant, back in verse 4. So it seems like it's during this time with God up on the mountain uh, that Moses receives the instructions that appear in Exodus 25 to 40. They're not written on stone tablets by God, uh, but Moses knows. He's shown how to set up the tabernacle and how to establish the priesthood and so on. Only in verses 13 and 14, they're all about leadership. So we've got a kind of glimpse of the future leadership of Israel uh, because Joshua is allowed to head up the mountain a bit further with, with Moses. He's described as Moses' assistant. Uh, but that's a little bit for the future. In the present, Moses has to sort out who's going to be in charge while he's up the mountain. So verse 14, he delegates that leadership to his brother Aaron uh, and to her. And you might remember in the whole kind of golden calf episode, this delegation uh, is not something that goes particularly well. Uh, But that's that's for a few weeks' time. Then verses fifteen to eighteen, God calls Moses to actually enter the cloud of His glory, and we know that usually we can't see the glory of our invisible God. Usually, except for indirectly in things like creation. I was listening to Psalm 19 on my way here to church. It talks about how all of creation declares the glory of God. But here at Mount Sinai, as we see throughout the book of Exodus, God freely chooses to physically manifest His glory in this cloud, this billowing cloud of His glory, the cloud that settles down upon Mount Sinai in verse 16. For six days, Moses and Joshua are just kind of hanging out, who knows what they were thinking, uh, just outside this cloud of God's glory until finally on the seventh day, God calls out to Moses, calling him in to the cloud. I mean, this period of waiting must must have been pretty terrifying. Well, I don't know. I don't want to psychologize them too much. Maybe they were just chilled. But I reckon it would have been pretty terrifying just based on verse 17. Well, the, Israel, the rest of the Israelites, who were right down at the foot of the mountain, uh, could see the cloud of God's glorious presence. And to them, it seemed like a billowing cloud, a consuming fire. And they weren't even that close to it. Oh, I was thinking about during the week that uh, uh, some of us here uh, were a part of a church camp that was at Marysville on Black Saturday. Indeed, Adam Humphreys was kind of coordinating that camp. Uh, And I just remember seeing the billowing clouds of fire coming over the hills. Pretty terrifying. Uh, But in verse 18, Moses enters the cloud of God's glory. He goes right in. He, He goes further and further up the mountain, deeper and deeper into God's presence. He stays there in the cloud of God's glory for 40 days and 40 nights, which might be literal or might be just a kind of Hebrew idiom for saying, yeah, he was up there for a really long time. You know, we're not really sure. Moses is the representative of God's people, the the mediator between God and his people, has this incredible privilege of entering into the very presence of God, going deeper and deeper into God's presence. And part of the, the point of that is that God's glory is infinite. You can always go deeper, you can always go further. You can never fully know God. You can always more deeply understand and experience the infinite riches of his beauty and glory. Uh, it's an incredible privilege that Moses has to enter God's presence uh, as the representative and mediator of God's people. Uh, Moses didn't do that just for his own sake. You know, he was kind of like, oh, I'm really up for a spiritual experience today. This is really great. No, he, he did that. For the sake of God's people, I said before, because Moses entered God's presence, uh, he got the instructions for how to set up the tabernacle that we'll hear more about next week, and the tabernacle, well, which enabled every single Israelite to have the daily experience of, of seeing the very glory of God dwelling among them and worshiping God in His glory, as they journeyed towards the promised land. Uh, Moses also received the instructions uh, for the priesthood, or the priest who served in and ministered in the, the temple, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people uh, that they might experience God's glorious presence. Uh, and he received instructions about all those sacrifices, some of which we saw uh, back in verses 5 and 6, through which uh, God was able to dwell with his people without destroying them. But Moses entering God's presence resulted in all of God's people having the wonderful privilege of being able to see the very glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle and worshipping God in His glory. In that sense, the tabernacle, I'll unpack this more next week, but the tabernacle's really just a, a portable Mount Sinai. It's God's way of saying, hey, I can't move this mountain I, I, I want you to. I, I want to dwell with you. That's how much God wants to be with His people. And of course, most of God's people had to keep their distance. Like in this chapter, they weren't allowed to draw near to God, and that's different for us, isn't it? As Christians. It's different for us uh, because we don't have to keep our distance from God. We, we can draw near to God, but because we don't trust in the person and work of Moses, as great as he was, we trust in the person and work of Jesus, uh, the better Moses, the true Moses, the ultimate Moses. Uh, If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick uh, to the Gospel of Matthew uh, in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, because uh, one of the things Matthew wants to show us in his Gospel is that Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the true Moses. For example, we've seen in Exodus so far that Moses is brought out of Egypt. He's brought through the waters of the Red Sea. And now here in the wilderness, he spends forty days and forty nights in the presence of God, uh, presumably without food and water. Or I don't know that for sure. But and if you've got Matthew open, you'll see in Matthew chapter two uh, that Jesus also comes out of Egypt. Remember, Jesus is born, Herod wants to kill all the baby boys, Uh, and so Mary and Joseph flee down to Egypt. Jesus comes out of Egypt. And then in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes through some waters, the waters of baptism in the Jordan River. And then in Matthew chapter 4, what happens? But that Jesus is led out into the wilderness, where he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God his Father, without food and water. You see what Matthew's saying? The story ultimately is not about Moses, but about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Moses. Which is why in Matthew 5-7, to what does Jesus do? He gathers his disciples together on a mountain to deliver to them the ultimate book of the covenant. And to tell them, this is how you should live as the covenant people of God. He's the true Moses. And then in Matthew 13, what does Jesus do? He's out in the wilderness, uh, and he delivers the ultimate bread of the covenant, miraculously feeding 5,000 people out there in the wilderness, all of them satisfied, showing us that it's his body that is broken on the cross uh, that satisfies our deepest needs. The book of the covenant, the bread of the covenant, and then in uh, the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26 Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant. We hear this when we have the Lord's Supper. Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrificial system that the God set up through Moses, uh, that involved, as we've seen today, offering various animals as substitutes in the place of Israel's sins, in the place of the Israelites for their sins. And it did indeed offer them forgiveness and atonement for sin, cleansing from sin. Of course, it wasn't permanent, but Israel kept on sinning over and over again, so they had to keep offering sacrifices over and over again. But Jesus is better than that, right? The sacrifice Jesus offers is better. The blood of the covenant that Jesus sheds is better. It's a once-for-all sacrifice for the complete forgiveness of all our sins, for complete and utter cleansing from every sin, past, present and future, not just for a moment, but forever. So that through faith in Christ, we can all have the privilege that Moses had. by not needing to stay at a distance from God. Uh, but being able to draw near to him with confidence and assurance. Oh, so, in Matthew 27, verse 51, right at the end of Matthew's gospel, at the very moment when Jesus dies, what happens? The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Right, but beyond that curtain was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the place where the cloud of God's glory dwelt over the ark of the covenant. Through faith in Christ, uh, in Christ, the true and better Moses, you can be completely forgiven of your sins. You can be cleansed of all your sins. And you can have the privilege of entering into God's glorious presence with confidence and assurance in your heart. Now, Hebrews has a lot to say about this, doesn't it? And the writer of the Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters... and having our bodies washed clean with pure water. Our worship as God's people ought to be grounded in the book of the covenant. It's possible because of the blood of the covenant. It's satisfying because of Christ, the bread of life, the bread of the covenant. And it's infinite because through the the person and work of Jesus, we have the wonderful privilege of entering into the infinite presence of God. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray, as we have just uh, read from the book of Hebrews, uh, that you would give us uh, confidence and full assurance in our hearts uh, that by faith in the blood of our Lord Jesus, uh, we can indeed uh, come boldly and confidently into your presence. Uh, We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.